Well, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at chapters 8 through 15. So might as well sit back, relax, because you know I can go a real long time. Uh, no, I, I jest. Um, but uh, this morning, I do want to take a serious note before we begin. Um, I want to let you guys in on something that maybe you already know, maybe you don't. So throughout the week, we try to attend and serve people and serve God and serve this place. And things happen throughout the week. Sometimes we have an easy week. Sometimes we have a difficult week. Can you all relate to that? So when we, you know, we've been going through the Samuel series, and when we're pouring ourselves, Marshall and I, Pastor Marshall and I, are pouring ourselves over, we're, we are thinking about the things that have happened that week. We are thinking about the, the lives that we interact and engaged with. I don't see everybody here throughout the week, but some of you I do. And so uh, I'm not wanting to mislead or to trick anybody here. I want you to know that when I come to this text today, that there are some things that I think we're going to be confronted with. And so I just pray that no matter how hard they may seem, no matter how difficult it sounds, how much of a punch it might feel like, that you would consider it. I, I know I look pretty... Mean or aggressive, I guess. I don't know. If you're new me, you'd be like, that guy is not at all. I mean, that guy watches Anna Green Gables. That's weird. <laughs> so, but just know this. All that I do, all that I'm trying to do is really bring the Word of Lord, the, the Word of God to you. I want you to understand that. Because there are things that constantly happen, even within the Bride of Christ, that are not Okay. There are things that happen in our life that are chaotic. There are things that happen within this collective family that are chaotic. There are things that happen in your own life that are chaotic. And I want to submit to you this morning, as we look at the character of Saul, <clears throat> that we will be confronted with that chaos. And I want you to feel the weight of that, because it is my desire, if you can feel how heavy that chaos is in your life, I'm going to give to you God's word to you to lift it up so you can walk out of here without weight. Okay? So I just want you to know that before we begin. We're, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit at the end of this about relationships. Because ultimately that's what it's here for. We've been talking about kingdom. We're, we're ushering in a kingdom with King Saul, this character. And so what is the kingdom about? And I would submit to you that the kingdom is a marriage to Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. But before we do, we're going to learn a lot about King Saul. And as we continue, we've been going through Samuel, like I've said. And as we walked through, we looked at Hannah, who asks for Samuel, a boy, and that she devotes over to God all the days of his life. We look at Eli and his two sons and how horrific they were and how horrific they treated the house of the Lord and the offerings of the Lord and the activities of the people, right? We, we looked at Samuel in a little bit more detail that, see, that he is the, the new guy to usher in the kingdom. He leads in a great way. And today we're going to look at this guy named Saul. And before we get there, I know some of us already know this story. I know everybody's like, well, King Saul, he was the guy that pursued after David, so he wasn't a good guy. But I would ask you to pause, hang on to that for a second, and let's actually look a little bit more into his life as we find it here in 1 Samuel. As we begin in, in chapter 9, 
I'm going to do, a, this is a lot of stuff, so I'm going to try to overview this, and then we're going to dive down at some um, parts of the story to pull out some significance, and then we're going to dive back up into narrative. So, Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was, we were told that he's a handsome young man. We are told that he's a head above all the rest. And here's the interesting thing. His name in Hebrew means asked. Right? And so what the author is doing at this point in the book is he's given a pun. If you're reading, you have Samuel, whose name in Hebrew means God hears, and you then have Saul, this character, introduced to you in the book that says asked. And you're like, okay, what's the significance of that? The nation of Israel, as we learned last week, just asked for a king, a human king. They don't want God to rule over them anymore. They want to be like their neighbors down the street, and so they asked for a human king. And so God gave them and granted their request. Ask and you shall receive. We've heard this said. But be careful what you wish for. You've heard that said. And so what you have here from the get-go is a pun or a play of words where you have uh, Samuel and Saul or God hears and asked. Right? And so then we enter in the story. Saul comes onto the scene. And first we learn a few things about him. We learn that he is first and foremost the family man. From the time we meet Saul and engage with him in the text, his father Kish loses his donkeys. And he goes to his son Saul and he says, Hey, I need you to grab a couple guys and go find my donkeys. So he's a family man. See, he's not a young kid where, where we would say to little ones like, hey, You need to go clean up your room. This is a, an adult man who he goes, Kish goes to his son and says, Hey, I need your help. I need you to go find something that has been lost. And like a good son, like a good family man, Saul then takes some guys and goes and does. He goes and finds these donkeys. Now, I want you to pay attention to the donkey. Because the donkey is a beast of a king. So already in the narrative, God's a great storyteller. He's showing us that, oh, there's a, he's going to look for a donkey. But really what Saul's going to engage with is a kingdom. Do you remember in the Gospels when it says when you, the kingdom of heaven is like this? When you find a buried treasure, you sell all you have, and you go and you buy that plot of land so you can have that buried treasure, right? And so here what you have is Saul goes looking for donkeys and runs and gets a kingdom. So Saul's a family man. Saul's going to be inheriting a kingdom. We see this imagery. When it is told to him, when he encounters Samuel, he finally engages with Samuel. Samuel, the Lord told Samuel, like, hey, this guy's going to show up, and he's he's the one. I want king over these people. And so he shows up, and Samuel says, hey, you're going to be the new king over Israel. And we, we learn something else about Saul. He's very humble. He's very modest. He has humble beginnings. He's like, I come from a little tiny tribe in Benjamin. Like, how, why me? Like, that, no, that doesn't make sense. And we hear this again in the New Testament. What good could come from Nazareth? Oh, the king of kings. Oh, okay. And so then Samuel goes, okay, so now I want you to, to, to follow these instructions. And this is going to be on your way. You're going to come to this place. You're going to turn on these trees. You're going to encounter these three people. And you're going to have like a garrison of Philistines. You're going to turn right at the McDonald's. And then you're going to come to this little oak and, and all this other stuff. Like all this long descriptive details on, on how to get to the place. He's like, when you go here, this is what's going to make you king. And then all of a sudden he gets there. He encounters these three prophets. And then the, the Holy Spirit, we're told, 
falls upon him and he starts prophesying. You got the garrison of Philistines over here, some prophets over here, and he just, with the power of the Holy Spirit, starts proclaiming God's word, prophesying. And everybody realizes that there's something different about this guy. In fact, his uncle hears about this and he comes to Saul and says, like, dude, what's going on? He says, well, I was looking for my um, father's donkeys and I ran into Samuel. And he's like, oh, what did Samuel say? And he says, well, Samuel said a lot of things, but he said the donkeys had been found. And Saul doesn't tell his uncle about the fact that Samuel just told him that he's going to be king over Israel. Not because like he wanted to withhold anything, but as I believe that we're in this narrative of kind of building up the character of Saul, is because he's modest. And then next... Samuel grabs him, meets him where he told him he, he should be after he's received the Holy Spirit. His heart has been changed. He's been given a new heart. And so now Samuel gathers all the people together. He says, y'all take a seat, gather together. Y'all from various tribes, you traveled a long way. Now let me present to you your king, King Saul. Saul's nowhere to be found. He's like, where's Saul? Saul, what's going on? And they go looking for him. And where is Saul found? But in a bunch of luggage. Now, because I read into the text growing up, like King Saul's not the king of kings, right? He's not even like David. You would think that this is a negative thing. Like this dude's hiding, he's scared, but it's not because what he's doing is actually serving the people. He's busy about not only doing the things that his father asked, but also doing for others. As they traveled, he's among the luggage and he's serving others. Then, shortly after he's been announced king, we have like, the naysayers, the people like, this guy? This guy is going to reign for us. And instead of like fighting back and being contentious, we read that Saul rolls with the punches and remains peaceful and calm and moves on. He doesn't engage with those naysayers. And so just to kind of overlook what Saul all about so far, what we can come to know is that he has a pretty good character. He's a family guy. He listens to his father, even though he really doesn't have to, but he does. Right? He, he, find, he runs into the kingdom, like, and he gets the Holy Spirit, and his heart is even changed. He becomes unrecognizable to his uncle because of that. He's modest. He comes from humble beginnings. He's a servant. He maintains peace, rolls with the punches. And here in the next, the next uh, chapter... We're going to see that he's working and plowing fields. So he's a worker. Right after he's made king. He's declared king, and this this dude's in the fields working. But here's the thing that we need to point out. Good character is not a guarantee. Godly character is what you are meant to be. See, we can be good enough in our own way and on our own terms, but it is only a godly character that dwells with God in the presence of God among God's people. That is what God wants to fashion you into. He doesn't want to make you more of yourself. He wants you to become more of an image of Him. So you don't rely on good character. And we're going to see that. You can rely on godly character, which comes through the aiding of the Holy Spirit as he begins to recreate you. So it does appear that Saul's a really good candidate for king. Actually, I would say 
possesses some good qualities of a, of a suitor I would allow my daughter to date. Date, not marry, because she doesn't get married. But, uh, but, she, but like this guy's good, right? He has all the qualities. We say, like, okay, he's a respectable guy. But would he be able to protect her, though? Like, I mean, he has good character. He rolls with the punches. He didn't engage with the naysayers. But when it comes down to it, will he be protective? Can he lead with those qualities? Can he do well? See this unfold of whether he can or not in three battles. He's going to battle a serpent. He's going to battle a Goliath-sized army. And he's going to battle with Yahweh over devotion. So let's go into it. Let's look at this battle of the serpent. Saul takes his new role as king for a test drive. The battle against the serpent. And why am I saying this? Because it is a battle against the Amorites, who King Nahash, his Hebrew name means serpent. I've already walked through all what the serpent uh, imagery is of the Old Testament. Do you remember back in Genesis when all went awry, chaos ensued because poor decisions were had, and the fall happened, and then God gives a promise in the midst of curses, and he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so anytime this imagery pops up in Scripture, we pay attention to it. Oh, there's a serpent who crushes it. Right? And so that's what we have. We have the Amorites. The Amorites rise up against the people of God. And they come and they say, hey, we're going to destroy you. And the people of God are fearful. They're very few. It's just one tribe. And they said, don't, don't destroy us. Like, is there something else? Can we make a treaty? Like, can we make a pact? Like, what else can we do? He goes, okay, well, I want to defile you guys, so I want you guys to cut out your right eyes, and then I won't destroy you, right? The nerve of this guy, right? And so they're like, uh, well, can you give us seven days to see if we have anybody who can come and rescue us? You're like, sure, you go ahead. You have that seven days. We'll see if anybody can come and rescue. And then here's where we engage with Saul into the text. Saul is coming in from the field behind oxen, and he sees that the, his people, the people of Israel, stirred up. And he's like, what is this that I'm hearing? And then the Holy Spirit rushes on him. And the Holy Spirit leaves from the Lord anger and says, Saul, we don't like this. Nobody will defile our people. And Saul begins to get angry. And then he breaks apart the oxen, sends it to the people and says, you will become like this if you don't come fight. And so he unites all of the people together and they go and fight and they are victorious over the serpent. So, so far, so good. Man, this guy can protect. This guy is zealous. This guy is filled with the Holy Spirit. All is good. All is great. Right? Filled with the Spirit of God, King Saul brings the people together in battle. They show up in great numbers. All this because the serpent wanted to defile the people. Let me point something out specifically to you guys. This is something I'm huge on. And that is there is a spiritual realm that exists, one that many of us are not privy to, but is just as much reality. And it is led by Satan himself who despises and hates Yahweh, God, and his people. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to cut out your right eye. He wants to defile you in all the growth 
risque ways because he wants to bring you low. He started with Adam and Eve, and he's been doing it ever since. The only one he can't get a lick on is Jesus Christ. You need to understand that. Your sin caused chaos, but then Satan also wants to get you to invite more chaos into your life. And many of us think that we can outwit him, but he is the father of lies. He makes truth, he makes a lie look this close to truth. My fingers are touching, but there should be a space there, and I can't get that close. You need to understand that Paul says it this way, people exchange the truth for a lie because the father of lies wants to come in and whisper in your ear, and you go, that makes sense. Actually, that makes really logical good sense. I should probably go and do this. And all of a sudden, you have invited and welcomed chaos into your life when God says, that's not the way. I gave order in my word, and you departed from it. And now it's chaotic. So when the serpent wants to defile God's people, we, with the aiding of the Holy Spirit, should contend. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes, metaphorically. Sometimes that means, like, I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm not going to stand for this. Then we engage into the next battle. And this battle, Saul's son, Jonathan, instigates. So, Jonathan goes and picks a fight with the Philistines. Here we go again with the Philistines. They're instigated. And this time the Philistines aren't going to have it. And they show up with a Goliath-sized army. More chariots and men than the sands on the seashore. What is that image about? Do you remember that Abraham's descendants is supposed to be more than all the sand on the seashore? So in the Hebrews' mind, they come to battle and they see this imagery and they look around and they're not such as they are. What do they do? Read this in 1 Samuel 13, 5 and 7. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash and to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him in trembling. So instead of rolling with the punches and having the Spirit of the Lord and saying, Guys, let's fight. If you don't fight, you're going to be like this oxen. He's trembling back here. And guess what the people do? They follow suit. And here's the part of the story where it doesn't take very long until we, so far we've been, oh, good character, victory over war. I mean, we killed the serpent. Now we're about to see the dissension of Saul and his character and his relationship with Yahweh, the one who made him king. And we see this in three different ways. Just like there's three battles, we're going to see specific three ways how Saul loses the kingdom. So let's get back to this dumpster fire. While hiding from the Philistines, Saul is told to wait for Samuel to see if the Lord will fight for them and to give them victory. So him and Samuel were supposed to get together and then... Can, uh, call on the Lord and say, will you give us victory from the Philistines? Right? And what, what happens? 
Saul becomes impatient. He's supposed to wait seven days. On the seventh day, he sees how the Philistines are about to weigh lace to his people. He gets impatient. He doesn't rely on the, the order and the, the plan. He diverts from the plan. He goes, you know what? I'm just going to take over now, and I'm going to do my own thing, and we, we got to do this. right? Out of fear, he's motivated to do something very inappropriate. And so he makes an unlawful sacrifice to the Lord so that he can hear from the Lord. And right when he commits the act, I mean, this is just like a good sitcom, Samuel enters in. Like, what did you do? And he makes all these excuses. And Saul commits an impatient offering. Then Jonathan, so while they're waiting, so Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? I mean, this Goliath of this army, then you got Jonathan and a couple other dudes who are his armor, go and decide to stir things up again. I kind of like Jonathan. He's a cool cat. And he stirs things up with the Philistines. And all of a sudden, this great Goliath of an army easily gets knocked down and confused by just Jonathan and a couple guys. A couple stones of guys, right? They didn't have much. Everybody's fearing, but Jonathan and a couple dudes go and they they stir up the Philistines so much so that they, the Philistines are divided. They start hitting each other in the helmet. They start pushing each other on the ground. And total chaos ensues. He stirs them up. And then Saul looks and he says, oh, what's going on? Oh, they're hitting each other. Oh, this is great. Let's go now and attack. Let's go now and attack. And so he goes in and attacks and he finds victory. And he's like, oh, yes. We're going, we're attacked, and we're advancing against the Philistines. You know, this great Goliath-sized army we're advancing against. This is great. And then he gets bloodthirsty. And he says, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to beat them down. We're going to pursue them. We're going to chase them. We're going to annihilate our enemies. And we're, so I don't want you to eat. Don't eat. He gets this bright idea and a great battle strategy. Like, let's starve our, our troops and we're going to continue to advance. We're not going to let up. Won't stop, can't stop, we're moving forward, right? Saul commits a very horrific, inappropriate decision. See, God's people won't be defiled, and they won't be starved. You're not going to misuse them in that way. But Jonathan doesn't hear about this oath that they're not allowed to eat. That's what the oath is. Saul goes, you know, I don't want anybody to eat. Nobody eats till evening time. We're going to continue to advance. And they're already faint from uh, the first victory. And they're continuing. He's expending his people. He's expending the people of God. He's starving them out. Jonathan doesn't hear this. He walks into the woods, finds some honey. And he's just about to kill over because he's so tired and exhausted. Eats the honey and his life comes back to him. And he's ready to go again. And so, as the, as the people of Israel pursue them till evening, they have victory of the Philistines, they keep their cattle, their sheep, and they start, they're so hungry and famished that they take some of them and start cutting them open and eating their meat with blood in them, with blood in it. And that's inappropriate. God does not tolerate that. Saul hears about this. 
Saul says, no, 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 no. Stop. Don't sin against the Lord. Come, let's do the barbecue. Let's eat. And then we'll see if we're to continue through the night pursuing the Philistines. So they come, and uh, he seeks the Lord, and the Lord doesn't hear, or the Lord doesn't answer him. Again, the Lord does not show up to tell Saul what to do next. And he goes, there must be sin in camp. So he rolls some dice to show where the sin lies, and it lies with Jonathan. And he's like, Jonathan, what did you do? He goes, well, you made this dumb oath over your people saying that they can't eat. I didn't know about it. I went into the woods. I had some honey. And so now will I die? And Saul says, yeah, I mean, I, I mean that's my oath. I, I said, don't eat. You ate. Now I have, to, I have to kill you. But then the people of the Lord step up and says, no, surely the Lord is with him. Because him and just a couple guys against this major army stirred up things that gave us the victory. Surely the Lord's with him. So he shouldn't die. And so Saul didn't kill him. But everybody returned home and they didn't pursue the Philistines anymore. So already we have Saul committing an inappropriate offering, an inappropriate decision. And then now, lastly, we see how undevoted he is in this final battle scene which takes place in 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's battle language right there. I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek has done to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So finally, Samuel comes to Saul and tells him that God has seen what Amalek has done to Israel. God commands Saul to go and devote the Amaleks to destruction. Nothing should be left of them, not even livestock. Saul goes and does. However, he doesn't do completely. He changes things. And he reminds me at this point in time, kind of like that kid, you go, hey, I need you to go clean your room right now. Go clean your room. They go, they clean your room, they come back like, all right, it's all clean. And you just know that smirk, that stance, that posture of like pride is like, there's something off about this. Let's go. And you go to the room, you're like, okay, at first presence, it does look and appear clean, but what's that under the bed? Is that a cereal bowl with mold in it? Is that a closet full of trash and dirt? What's under this rug? Oh, good night. All of a sudden, they prided themselves and paraded themselves as if they had cleaned their room, but did they ultimately clean it? See, this is the point of devotion. When God says to do something... He doesn't allow you to dictate or to change what he says or to say like, oh, well, my interpretation says that this is what destruction meant. Because Saul tells Samuel, when Samuel goes like, hey, did you do what the Lord had said? He goes, yeah, I destroyed him. He goes, then why am I hearing cattle? Why am I hearing sheep? What's that sound I hear, Saul? He goes, oh, well, I kept, you know, we, we had so much vi great victory. I kept some of the things to give to the Lord. He's like, because you have 
gotten away and rejected the word of the Lord that said, all must be destroyed, the kingdom is going to be stripped from you. And Samuel turns and walks away, and Saul grabs his robe and grabs a corner of it, and it rips. And he says, just like that, the kingdom has been stripped from you. And Saul commits a lack of devotion, an incomplete devotion. And so here, briefly, we just look at how the character of Saul started out as a good character. Many of us might have started out with good character. And we've, we've tried to strive to be in the kingdom. Like Saul. We have the, the foundations of modesty and hum, humility and all those good things. We like to listen and things like that. But then, even when the Holy Spirit rushed on Saul, it fled from him. There's something to learn here. Something about a relationship with God. And now that's what I want to turn our attention to. I remember in college, sitting on a bench at Carson Newman University now, but it was college then. And uh, it was kind of my my first experience of dating. And uh, I had heard this new phrase going around campus that put the fear in the hearts of every guy on campus. And it's this. DTRs define the relationship. And what that means, for those who don't know, is it's that point in time when the girl's expecting for you to commit and say your boyfriend and girlfriend. And the guys are just like, I thought we were just hanging out. I thought we were just friends. But there's that moment where you have that DTR. Mine came on this bench at Carson Newman. And uh, I just remember saying, like, so... uh, yeah, I just think you're, you know, a good friend, and like, that's it. I just don't see this going anywhere. And I can just see that I just became the jerk of campus, and it wasn't going so well. But we all have standards in relationships. There's things that we have to do. And what's been laid on my heart in this narrative is something that we can also see with... uh, bigger narrative that is also taking place. We've been looking at the character of Saul because that's where we're at. We're looking at characters. But also mixed throughout all these chapters is something else happening. And that is these DTRs that happen between Israel and Samuel. Before Saul becomes even king, Israel kind of approaches Samuel and says, so, uh, yeah, so your sons aren't great leaders, so we're going to use your poor parenting as an excuse to say that we're not going to be in relationship with you anymore, or God. We want a human king to rule over us. So, uh, appreciate the time, but this is where we're going. And Samuel becomes frustrated, like a teenage girl who just got broken up with, and goes to God and says, this is not right, and he's right. It's not right. It's not appropriate. But God says, they have asked, and I will grant. Next time, They actually have victory. Remember, over the serpent. They go to that battle with King Saul. Oh, see, we've asked for a king. Now we're victorious. Now we're living life. Woo, this is great. See, we did a good thing. We imposed upon God our desires, and guess what? It worked out. And then uh, Samuel says, hey, guys, I just got to have a hard conversation with you right now. I got to talk to you. Like, 
here we're, we're victorious and you guys are jumping up and you're great. You think you did a good thing. But you've been worshiping other gods beside the one true God. And you asked for a human king when you had God as your king. Matter of fact, he's right here, right now. He's going to thunder and rain to show you he's here and present. And it thunders and rains. And the people of Israel get terrified and say, they tell Samuel, we have done an evil thing. We have made poor decisions. This is chaotic. This isn't good. Now, will you talk to God and, and see and just make sure that he won't kill us or destroy us? Samuel says, I've already talked to God. You know, you, you wanted a human king, and that was a very evil thing to ask. But what he's going to do is if you align in relationship with him, if you will cling to his word, he's going to bring order to the chaos you've invited in. And he's not going to undo the king thing. He's going to use what you wanted for evil to work good. And you wanted a human king, and so he's going to usher in the king of kings. And you have this moment with Samuel and Israel where you're just like, oh, they got it. They're back. They're back. The bride and the groom are together again. But then they wane. And then their leader wanes. Because he tells them, as long as you and the king abide in God's word and in relationship with him, all will be well. Trust and believe that. And immediately did those words fall from his lips. Then they all went astray. And now, in that last scene in the battle, God tells Samuel to go to Saul and he says, I want to have a DTR. You haven't been doing so well. We're going to define this relationship. Have you been dating me, coming and going, or are you married and devoted to me? And if you are, then go and do this. Prove your devotion to me. Peter says it this way, that God does test, not tempt, but test the genuineness of your faith. Because it is faith that allows us to be saved. Faith specifically in King Jesus that will bring salvation and order into our lives. So I'm just going to pause right here because I want to talk and have a little DTR. I don't, again, let me remind you, I do not desire to beat people up. But what I desire is Satan and be killing sin before it kills you and before it kills me. Are we people in this room who are dating God, Jesus? Well, what do you mean by that? You all know. You can consult your conscience and you understand the idea of dating and you understand, understand the idea of marriage. God doesn't date. He only enters into covenant with the bride once and for all. He is about marriage, not about dating. He doesn't want a bunch of people that be like, ah, no, and no, you know, he, no, no, no. Because God himself is faithful. He is steadfast. He is loving. That never changes. And his people that he marries will be like that too. 
That's how we know if we're in a marriage with God. How faithful are we in serving God of the cosmos? Are we more loyal to our jobs? Here's the gut punch. Are we more loyal to the things that are not specifically in the relationship with God than God? Are we dating or are we married? I remember when I asked Melissa marry me. She didn't know it was coming, at least I don't think it, um, she knew it was coming. I had planned this big thing where my best friend was coming in and was going to surprise her. Her, her best friend was going to carry her, all, like get her, um, what do you call those, the foot things where they paint them? Thank you. And the hand things where they paint those. Um, and they do the hair thing. What all that, her friend was taking her on this thing. And so I was going to go and post her on Camelback Mountain in Phoenix, Arizona, which is the first place we spent our first date hiking or rock climbing. And so I was like, all right, she, she's going to get dropped off there. She's going to like, what's going on? She's going to meet my best friend who she had not met yet. And he's going to escort up the trail. I'm going to be there waiting, sweating with pit stains all over the place. And I'm going to be having my paper out, some music over there. And I was sitting there waiting. Hikers are coming by. And they're like, what is this dude doing? And I'm like, oh, just keep going. Thank you. Um, but I remember all the events that happened leading up to that day. I was getting ready to leave uh, the hotel with my friends, and literally an accident, a bus and a uh, car convertible went under this bus and had an accident literally right in front of me. And you know, with accidents, it stops you and you can't go. I'm like, I'm going to be late for this. Like, she's currently about to be there. I don't have time for this. Like, holy cow, like, oh, this is difficult. And so finally I get around and I'm rushing, I'm speeding, I'm being illegal at this time, and I'm going to this, uh, to this trail. And so my friends are there, and then it starts downpouring. And I'm like drenched. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And here's what I remember as I'm walking up to the trail. I'm thinking about this, this wreck. I'm thinking about this rain. Uh, Melissa's friend actually dropped her off on the other trail, which was like 15, 20 minutes. And I'm like, well, now you got to come back around this way. So I delayed. I'm like, I can easily interpret that this probably isn't meant to be, right? It's not in the tea leaves, so to speak. Things are happening. And I'm the, but I remember walking up, and man, rain was getting blown in my face. I was cold. I, it was just, I was miserable. And I said, God, I don't care what happens. I'm going to marry this woman because I believe you told me to marry her. So whatever you want to do, make it flood, son, because I'm going to marry this woman. I'm going to show you that I, am, I have a faithful heart. And I get to the trailhead and the rain stopped. And I said, I got to remember this story because it is not, it's a story of faithfulness, a type of perseverance and faithfulness that he's calling each and every one of us to. The faithfulness that Marshall has, where he sits here, he doesn't care how many people are in the seats. He cares about the people who are in the seats and their soul and their relationship with God, that he's been here for over 13 years that you guys have been faithful no matter how this place looks like, you show up because the Lord doesn't care that there's wall painted walls or not, but you show up because it's God and you're married to Him. People may come and go, but here are the things that God is defined in. God is faithful. God is loving. God is steadfast. So just because things happen in your life that are chaotic or seem to be deterring you from uh, the path... 
doesn't mean that it's of God. Maybe it's just a battle and a test that you're meant to walk through and live through to show faithfulness because you're an image bearer of the faithful one. And let me close with this. Maybe you're right now saying like, well, I'm not devoted. I have no devotion. I've actually defiled the body of God. I've defiled his people. I've devastated my life. I've messed up. I've turned away from God. I've invited chaos into it. Maybe that's you. I know that was me. But here's the good news, and here is where the weight can lift off. If you can go back and read on your own this whole story of Samuel, why we're even taking you through it, it's because, remember me talking about the faithfulness of God? God's like this. And when you turn like this, and if God's right back there, the moment you turn around, you come face to face with God. He says, I'm always here. I've never left. You leave. Even when you ask inappropriately, I'll give it to you. As Paul says, I'll give you over to yourself. If you want your life, you go get your life. But if you want to get a life, you come to me and I'll give you one. Like seriously, people. This isn't just worship hour, it's worship living all together, having those hard conversations, making things chaotic and bringing the order of God through his word to it. We don't recite this because it's cute. We recite this because it it is needed. Stray from this, but just a little. And chaos will be your life. But stick to it. Hide it in your heart. And it doesn't what? And sin doesn't rule you. This is the sword by which you can kill sin. This is the means by which order can be invited back into your life. There is nothing chaotic that God can't speak order into. If a dude can look into a tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, get up and walk, he could say into your life, order to the chaos. And it begins to clean begins to fashion and form and make you new again. That's what we need. And the warning, be warned by Saul. Dude had a great character filled with the Holy Spirit, was used by God in a lot of good ways, but then ends up grieving God and the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, because God is faithful and never change, oh, you just took a step over there and I can't go there. That's dirty. It makes me sad. It makes me sad you want to be jumping in mud puddles. But I can't follow you there. You come follow me here. You turn, I'm right here. I'll start bringing it together. It's a marriage. Let me get down one specific level. And that is, we have an opportunity to serve this community, to serve others, to bring them into the fold, to get them to experience the order that they all really ultimately crave for their lives. And we have the means, but how will they hear if nobody tells them? And how do we not tell them if we don't go? We may be few, like the nation of Israel, 
facing all kinds of a Goliath society and community, but just like Jonathan and a couple arm bearers that stir things up, we, Harvest Point, the few, devoted and married to Yahweh, abiding by His Word, can cut off heads of serpents and bring order into a world that's chaotic. With every step we take, if we abide in a kingdom life, according to how God says we do, with every step we take, we bring the kingdom with us and bring that kingdom into the lives of others. And if you're serious about that, if you're married to God, you will be serious about that. But if you're dating Him, you come and go. God's going to let you come and go. That back door is wide open. But if you guys want to do this together, I know two guys right here that want to go. So that's the invite. The invite is for all of us to be a family that's married to Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.